That is the sound you never want to hear. It is the sound of a warning siren going off at a nuclear power plant. But whether you can hear that sound or not, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly podcast keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island. So I know what it looks like when the experts get it wrong. Today, I am thrilled to bring you an interview with Dr. Helen Caldicott, an anti-nuclear activist for over 40 years and one of our greatest leaders. She'll offer words of advice for activists intent on making a difference, as well as a rundown of the mind-blowing roster of international experts she has assembled for the March 11th through 12th Symposium on the Medical and Ecological Impact of Fukushima. Big stuff. That interview will be coming up in just a few minutes. Today is Tuesday, January 15, 2013, and here is the week's nuclear news. First, A correction. Last week, Nuclear Hot Seat led with a story about a possible nuclear accident in Iran that had 1.5 million people evacuating from the city of Bashir and posed a threat to water desalination plants, oil fields throughout the Middle East, and the U.S. fleet stationed in Bahrain. But since that first set of alarming reports, nothing further has been heard. No international spikes in radiation, No hordes of evacuating Iranians. No panic in the oil fields. We now believe this story was disinformation, either accidental or intentional, but still, it was wrong. And our apologies for passing it along to you as if it were true. Now for some verifiable news. A 300-ton reactor vessel bound for Plant Vogel was stranded in South Georgia this week after a malfunction with the specially designed rail car moving the nuclear component from Savannah to Burke County. A December 15 attempt to move the vessel by rail was aborted after it traveled less than a mile aboard a specially designed transport car. It traveled just a quarter of a mile never going more than two miles per hour, with people walking along it the entire time, when the platform that contained the reactor vessel during transport became misaligned with the rail car. Joey Ledford, a spokesman for the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, said, It was fully contained in shrink wrap and there was no damage, not even to the shrink wrap itself. Doesn't that just beat all? The bubble wrap didn't even pop. The steel vessel, which weighs more than the Statue of Liberty, was built in South Korea and took three years to complete. No word if it will be remaindered to the nuclear industry's Ding and Dent Center. As you may be aware, Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.com, Fairwinds Energy Education, is now presenting a weekly podcast with his perspective on the nuclear issue. We will be linking to it on our website, but among the issues that he raised this week were that repairs at four nuclear reactors are so expensive that they should not be restarted. Arnie said, Duke Energy is seriously considering pulling the plug on the Crystal River nuclear plant. A financial analyst from a firm called Fitch says that the Crystal River plant will likely be caused because Duke can't make economic sense out of it. Last week, we had a financial analyst at UBS suggest that Vermont Yankee didn't make economic sense. We have Kiwani, which is shutting down in the Midwest because of financial reasons. 
So the dominoes are starting to fall. Another item for Arnie. At the Fort Calhoun plant, in case of an upstream dam failure, we're looking at 35 feet more water than there was in the flood 18 months ago. This was the flood to remind you that so threatened the nuclear power plant that the only thing protecting it was an 8-foot-high inflatable berm that at one point deflated and allowed flooding of the facility. Back to Arnie. He says, Dr. Bernard Shanks has said that if an upstream dam were to fail, it would cause a flood of biblical proportions. These plants are not designed against biblical floods. These plants were right at their limit two years ago. According to Dr. Shanks and many other geologists and hydrologists, the condition of the upstream dams is suspect. And finally, Arnie examined a new proposal by the Department of Energy, which is total numbnuts, because apparently they are suggesting that companies be allowed to melt radioactive scrap metal and reuse it in consumer goods like knives and forks. Oh yeah, this is numbnuts of the week. They also said that pots and pans could be made in this way, as well as baby spoons. Of course, by using radioactive metal to create the materials used in everyday food preparation, it's a great way to support the cancer treatment industry at the same time. Fire erupted at a nuclear plant in Texas and an emergency declared. It was Unit 2 of STP Generating Station near Bay City, Texas. It was declared, as usual, an unusual event, and the cause of the fire is under investigation. Here in Southern California, activists and local city representatives met with Allison McFarlane, chair of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, to express their concerns regarding the San Onofre nuclear power plant and Southern California Edison's proposed restart of the damaged, leaking nuclear reactor. Among those present were representatives from San Clemente Green, San Onofre Safety, and residents organized for a safe environment. While Commissioner McFarland seemed open to the activists' concerns, if it comes to a vote among the five NRC commissioners, she has no extra clout as chair and can easily be outvoted by the other four notably pro-nuclear commissioners. That's the same problem that was faced by former NRC chair Gregory Yasko. McFarland and her team declined to comment on the push from some activists for a license amendment hearing at San Onofre. This is the adjudicated evidentiary hearing, or trial, that we've been talking about here on Nuclear Hot Seat that would allow all the information about San Onofre to come out in a legal setting with cross-examination and a judge presiding. On Wednesday, meaning tomorrow, January 16th, Friends of the Earth will present its case to NRC officials in Maryland that Edison should have obtained a license amendment before installing the four steam generators in a massive $671 million operation between 2009 and early 2011. A decision on restart is expected from the NRC sometime in March, just in time for the second anniversary of Fukushima and the 34th anniversary of Three Mile Island. Here's hoping that San Onofre does not have the chance to join them in infamy. And in what we thought was going to be an exciting story, but really isn't, Destiny's Child will reportedly reunite at Super Bowl 47 on February 3rd and will join Beyonce on stage during her Super Bowl halftime game. They will perform a new song called Nuclear. 
initial excitement in the anti-nuclear community evaporated upon listening to the song because it has nothing whatsoever to do with nuclear issues. It simply co-opts the word into a pop schlock yawn fest, much like the song Sexual Healing co-opted that phrase from the incest survivor community. For a relevant anti-nuclear song, stay tuned to the end of Nuclear Hot Seat, where we will go out with What Part of Fukushima Do You Not Understand? Moving over to Japan, the Miyagi prefectural government announced that cesium levels in rice grown in Kurahara has been found contaminated with up to 240 becquerels of cesium per kilogram. The limit in Japan, the acceptable limit in Japan, is 100 becquerels of cesium per kilogram. The prefectural government announced that it will prevent nearby rice farms from shipping their produce to the markets for sale. Of course, it is still safe to export that rice to the United States because we allow up to 1,200 becquerels per kilogram of cesium in our food. Always check the source of the rice that you are buying. Fukushima City is not sticking to its plans to decontaminate homes, if such a thing is even possible. In areas where the annual radiation level is one millisievert or higher, the central government provides subsidies for decontamination work conducted by the municipality. Almost the entire city of Fukushima has radiation levels that call for such subsidies. About 90,000 households are eligible for such decontamination work, but so far it has been completed only on about 4,000 households. And of course, there is no provision for help with recontamination from blowing dust, cedar pollen, and ongoing radionuclides in the environment from Fukushima Daiichi. Cracks have been found in the spent fuel rods at Hamaoka Nuclear Power Plant. Chubu Electric determined that water had infiltrated the interior of the fuel rods through the holes, which made the entire strength of the fuel rods weaker. This led to cracks that appeared in the spent fuel rods. The utility assumed that the tensile load endured by the fuel rods when the fuel was removed for safety inspection may have contributed to the cracking damage. Fukushima's 65-year-old governor, Yuhei Sato, has been hospitalized since Sunday due to bleeding colon diverticulum, the prefectural government said on Monday. He's expected to remain under treatment for 7 to 10 days, according to the prefectural government. Note that these are some of the same symptoms that were faced by U.S. sailors who are suing TEPCO over exposure to radiation in the wake of Fukushima. Bleeding from the rectum is a trait associated with radiation exposure. And the final layer of steel framing for the cover on Fukushima has finally been installed as of today, January 14, 2013. It only took them close to two years. I could not be more proud of this week's interview. Dr. Helen Caldicott is originally a pediatrician who has become one of, if not the leading anti-nuclear activist in the world. For more than four decades, she has led the fight against all aspects of the nuclear debacle. I am honored to have interviewed her from her home in Australia about many aspects of nuclear history and the issues involved, as well as information on the extraordinary two-day international symposium she is producing, The Medical and Ecological Impact of Fukushima. Heavy hitters from all over the planet will be attending and sharing the scientific truth about what happened and what we continue to face. We had some technical problems, as you might expect of Skype when working across 19 time zones and the international dateline, 
but you'll be able to hear it all. Dr. Caldicott, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you. Let's get a little bit of background so we can understand how you got into the nuclear issue to begin with. You were a successful pediatrician in Australia, and here in the U.S., you had uh, quite prestigious positions on the staff of Children's Hospital Medical Center in Boston, and you taught pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. What originally drew you into the nuclear issue? Well, I've actually been in it ever since I was about 16 and read a book called On the Beach by Neville Shute, which was about a nuclear war that occurred by accident in the Northern Hemisphere. And gradually the radiation came down to Melbourne, which is where I lived. And in the end, um, everybody died. Um, and that really um, branded my soul. I was never the same again. And then I went to medical school age 17 and learned about radiation genetics and how it can induce mutations, genetic disease and deformities. And at the time... Russia and America were testing bombs in the atmosphere, uh, just blanketing the Northern Hemisphere with radioactive fallout. And so I've always been concerned. But really I, I got politically involved when I led the movement in Australia in 1971 against French atmospheric tests in the Pacific Ocean and we were getting a lot of fallout in Australia. And that movement led to the international court telling France that it shouldn't test. And so France was forced to test on the ground. So I saw how a democracy can be used just purely by educating people about the medical dangers of radiation and fallout. So that was the... And then I also led the movement in Australia in 75 against uranium mining, mining by talking to the workers and telling them how dangerous it was, both themselves, their children and what happened to it when it's exported and put in nuclear power plants. So that's my, a little bit of my background. And that was simultaneous with your training and then going into pediatrics. Yes, yes, I did the whole thing simultaneously. In fact, I did the French test issue while working 80 hours a week as a pediatric intern at the Adelaide Children's Hospital. So when people say they haven't got time, you've always got time if you have passion in your soul about an issue. How did Three Mile Island impact your actions involving nuclear here in the States? Well, I was already deeply involved when it happened. I think I'd already founded Physicians for Social Responsibility in Boston in 78. And what happened was I put an ad in the New England Journal of Medicine about the medical dangers of nuclear power, and it was published the day after Three Mile Island melted down. <laughs> Suddenly we were besieged by 500 new members and we were operating out of a sort of broom cupboard in the basement of a Harvard medical practice. So we just grew exponentially after that and then we got into the medical dangers of nuclear weapons. So we really led the movement in a way against nuclear power but also strongly against nuclear war and nuclear weapons. And at the time Reagan was president saying, you know, he might press the button even just joking, and people were really scared. So we grew to a, an organisation of, um, we had 152 chapters and 23,000 members, most of whom were physicians. And I think we were one of the leaders of the nuclear weapons freeze, and I think we helped, in fact, to bring an end to the Cold War along with a lot of other people. 
Three Mile Island, for the horrors that it created, also seemed to be a boost in terms of people being aware of nuclear suddenly as an issue and getting them stirred up about it. But through the years, that fear has gone away, and there's been a lot of propaganda towards pro-nuke and the nuclear renaissance and all the rest. How have you positioned yourself with your work to continue combating it? Well, I've just continued with my educational efforts about the medical dangers of nuclear power and nuclear waste and nuclear accidents. I wrote a book called uh, Nuclear Madness, which came out just after Three Mile Island happened, and it sold a lot of copies. And it was about how radiation causes mutations and how it causes cancer and how long the incubation time for cancer is after you've been irradiated, like 5 to 70 years. And since that time, I mean, I've been on the speaking circuit in the United States and Canada and all over the world, really, uh, talking about these issues. Through the years, besides Physicians for Social Responsibility, you have founded the Women's Action for New Directions, WAND, the Nuclear Policy Research Institute, which we turned into Beyond Nuclear. What was your goal in starting so many different groups? Well, I started WAND, which was originally called Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament, and it still should be called that, because after I gave a talk so often, it was the women who were absolutely passionate about it. And I thought 53% of the women, of the people in America are women. And so we have a huge potential political power. And so I wanted to actually call it the Women's Party for Survival. But people said, oh, you can't start a new political party, which I think actually was wrong and I should have done that. But that's why I started it. And it's grown to be extraordinarily successful. PSR has become very successful. I then dropped out for a little while. I had a few personal problems in my life, and then I came back and founded NPRI, the Nuclear Policy Research Institute, and held, I think, six or seven very important symposia, one called Three Minutes to Midnight, about the impending threat of an accidental nuclear war, which still exists, one called Global Warming and Nuclear Power, and from that conference, a book was written called carbon-free, nuclear-free by Arjun Makajani, showing that America could be carbon-free, nuclear-free by 2050, but in fact it's probably more like 2030. Um, and we held one called Nuclear Weapons in Space, called War in Heaven, and a book came out of that symposium called War in Heaven. And so I did that, and then I got tired and sick of raising money because that's what you have to do when you have non-profit organisations. And I gave my 501c3 to my very close friends who took the non-profit 501c3 and founded Beyond Nuclear, which is really an offshoot of NPRI. Then after a while, I've had someone who's been wanting me to do a radio program, and I said no because I can't raise the money. But suddenly money fell into my lap, and so I've had a radio program for four and a half years on Pacifica and allied networks called If You Love This Planet. And I did 196 programs interviewing some of the most important scientists in the world. I've just ended that because I couldn't raise the money. But now I have another organization called the Helen Caldicott Foundation because people said, why don't you call it after yourself because you're a brand? And I thought, that's silly. But I did. 
And I'm in the process now of organising a very big two-day symposium on the second anniversary of Fukushima in the New York Academy of Medicine called The Medical and Ecological Consequences of Fukushima. What is the scope of information? Who's going to be presenting there and what are you looking for the impact to be? I'm setting it up primarily to try and educate the media who are profoundly ignorant about the medical and biomedical effects of radiation and about nuclear accidents. So I had invited the Prime Minister of Japan, who was the Prime Minister during the accident, Naoto Khan, but I think he can't come. I have a couple of excellent nuclear engineers who are going to speak about how the accident occurred and why. I've got a female doctor from the Independent Investigative Commission set up by the Parliament in Japan, and she's going to talk about how corrupt the government was and the corporations and how the Japanese culture really led, in fact, to the accident. There's another Japanese diplomat who will be speaking about the politics related to the accident in Japan. And then someone else is speaking about the severe contamination from cesium and other isotopes in Japan. Then another doctor from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute is going to speak about the ocean contamination from massive amounts of radioactive material being spilt and still being emptied into the Pacific Ocean. Another wonderful evolutionary biologist who will be speaking about what's happening to the wildlife in the exclusion zones of both Chernobyl and Fukushima. And there are many mutations and abnormal insects and birds that they're finding, and that should be then applied to human beings. There's another wonderful Polish expert in thyroid abnormalities in children. He's going to speak about the fact that over 100,000 children less than 18 have been examined by ultrasound in Fukushima and about 37.5 of them have thyroid lesions and some are already developing thyroid cancer. Alexei Yablokov, who was the lead author of a wonderful report on Chernobyl for the New York Academy of Sciences, is going to come. Another man is going to speak, Dr. Wurtelecki, about very severe congenital defects associated with Chernobyl in a town where the people eat the local food and mushrooms, which is very radioactive. I've got a man, Dr. Herb Abrams, who is on the Bear 7 Report Commission for the National Academy of Sciences. So I really do have a very comprehensive list of speakers, including another one who's going to speak about how women and female children are much more sensitive to radiation than men. So I think people will learn an enormous amount by attending this symposium, but mainly I want to attract the national and international press to try and educate them about the basics of radiation biology. That's an astonishing list that you just gave, and comprehensive, and it sounds like you're going for the world experts whose credentials cannot be cut out from under them. Absolutely, yep. So if people wish to attend this, we'll get on to the media in a moment, but if people want to learn more about this and if they wish to attend it, how can they go about doing this? Where can they get the information? They can go to my website at nuclearfreeplanet.org and there is information about the symposium and a registration form. And I think the sooner they get in, the better. 
it's $60 to register and that means two days of wonderful expert knowledge being distributed and two very nice box lunches on each day and you'll have a chance to talk to each other and learn from each other and from the speakers. Is there a limit to the number of people who can be handled by the venue? Well, we've got a room for 300, which is pretty big because it's two weekdays, but we can probably move to another room of 500. So I think we're covered in terms of space. And will this be live streamed at all or made available over the Internet? Yes, the symposium will be live streamed and shortly there will be information about that on the web page. You said you want to make connection with the media and try and convince them to cover the issue more thoroughly. How has the media outreach been going so far? Well, we've only just started. We've uh, hired PR people and they are about to begin working on it. It's still two months away, so we will be sending a press release out very shortly and there will be extensive follow-up. So that's where we stand at the moment. And I would just like to suggest to any listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat that if you have contacts in the media to let them know that this is happening so they have a shot at covering it. They can go to their editors. They can go to their assignment editors. You know, you've been dealing with this issue for so many years now. Are there times when you look at it and you feel a sense of despair or hopelessness? And if so, what do you do during times like this to keep yourself going? Well, it kind of is pretty hopeless because the nuclear industry and the weapons industry, it's all one and the same thing really, have enormous amounts of money, of political power and persuasion and they put out enormous amounts of propaganda and they have the ear of the Congress and the Senate and of course the White House, let alone other countries. And meanwhile, the nuclear industry is propagating nuclear power plants as fast as it can all over the world and any country with a reactor can make a nuclear weapon from the plutonium in the reactor. So what they're doing is proliferating nuclear weapons and increasing the risk of nuclear war. And of the 20,000 nuclear weapons globally now, Russia and America own 97% of them. So unless those two nations behave responsibly and start to do some immediately, I'm afraid that lateral proliferation could trigger a global holocaust between those two nations, either by computer error or mistake or human error or whatever. And that is clearly outlined on the website nuclearfreeplanet.org. How do I deal with the sense of hopelessness? The only way I can do it, actually, is to be active and keep going. And sometimes miracles occur. I mean, the Cold War did end. I never thought that would be happening in my lifetime. And being active stops me feeling depressed. If I, if I stop, I get profoundly depressed. So it's my form of therapy, I guess. If you could give direction to activists for where we should be focusing, some of the work that we need to be doing, what would your suggestions be? I think first, before becoming active, you need to really be educated so you can take on any critics full frontal and demolish them. So I'd advise you, I guess, to read my two books, Nuclear Power is Not the Answer and Nuclear Madness, and go to the website Nuclear Free Planet where you can learn a hell of a lot. Dr. Caldicott, is there any final word you'd like to leave the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat with? Yes, I think that it's, it's imperative that people who are deeply concerned about all things nuclear learn as much as they can about the medical effects of radiation, the biological effects. And I have written two books specifically 
in that area. One is called Nuclear Power is Not the Answer by the New Press, and the other one is Nuclear Madness, What You Can Do by W.W. W. Norton. If you read those two books, you'll know more than anyone who's interviewing you. You'll know more than the people at the nuclear power stations or the NRC because they don't understand radiobiology. So once you're armed with the facts, then you'll know what you have to do. No one's ever told me what to do. I just kind of know as I learn more, and I do it. And again, with the symposium coming up in March, for March 11th and 12th, how can people learn more about it, and how might they participate? We welcome people from all over the country, academics and politicians, but particularly members of the public who are deeply concerned about their adjacent reactors. You can go to the website, nuclearfreeplanet.org. There's a registration form there and description of the conference. I have some of the leading scientists, physicians, radiobiologists in the world who are coming and some people from Japan who are deeply involved in the accident. So I think you'll find it absolutely fascinating. And on the other side of the symposium, how do you hope it's going to move our movement forward? How might we be able to continue to use this information to boost our presence? Well, it's a good question, but the New Press plans to transcribe all the speeches and turn it into a book. So the information will be available. I'm not sure if we can put it up. It's going to be live streamed throughout the world. I'm not sure if we can put it up on YouTube. I have to ask the New Press for their permission, and they may not want that. But certainly, you'll learn so much you can take notes, and it will be available soon in book form. Dr. Caldecott, on behalf of all of us in this movement and all of the people who aren't in the movement but deserve to be, I want to thank you for your decades of dedicated work on this issue, all you have done, and all you continue to do for all of us and for the planet. Thank you very much, Libby. I appreciate your interview. You're a very good interviewer. Thank you. To learn more about Dr. Caldecott's International Symposium on the Medical and Ecological Consequences of Fukushima, go to her website, ifyoulovethisplanet.org, and click on the hyperlink in her first paragraph, which is under the title, To Our Listeners. We will also have a link on our website, nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. Here's the final thought. Dr. Caldecott has been a crucial part of my life. When I returned from Three Mile Island, I was a total wreck, not knowing what happened to me, what it meant, if I even had a lifespan ahead of me. Having written an article for the then-new publication, L.A. Weekly, I was called in by the editor to work on fine-tuning it. While he read his way through my current draft, he handed me a copy of the previous week's issue and showed me an article he wanted me to read. It was an interview with Dr. Caldecott, the first time I had ever encountered her name. She was the only one who told the truth about what I faced from exposure to low-level radiation. Was it frightening? No. It was terrifying. But her information, her truth, allowed me to make lifestyle changes that I believe have helped keep me alive. Dr. Caldecott has pulled together this unprecedented symposium in New York for the second anniversary of Fukushima. Her stated goal is to educate the media on this issue so they are motivated to cover the story accurately and frequently. To achieve that end, Members of print, 
broadcast, and online media must learn of this conference and be encouraged, no, be urged to attend. It's going to be live-streamed, so location is no excuse for them not to participate and get the information, but they need to be made aware of the event and its importance. This is where we as a movement can make a difference, and it's in all our best interests to do so. The symposium could be a watershed moment in our efforts to stop nuclear because of the quality of information that is being presented. But if it is ignored and passes unnoticed by the mainstream media, the opportunity will be lost, possibly forever. So here's what you can do. If you are involved with any anti-nuclear or climate change organization, look at your media list. Who do you know? Who have you dealt with in the past? We need you to contact them by phone and email and tell them about this event. Their participation will provide them with incontrovertible research by world experts to which they can refer in future articles, stories, and features. It will give them a shortcut to their future excellence and accuracy. I'm convinced that the first reporter to get this story right in all of its complexity will be rewarded with a Pulitzer Prize. You can say those words to them. Pulitzer Prize. If they're a real reporter, it will get their juices rolling. And somebody's going to get one of those, so it might as well be them. However, they have to get the story and get it right. So contact them and let them know. If you don't have media people on your list, Google newspapers, radio and TV in your area, and send email or call the news departments. Columnists for newspapers are a good bet because they have great latitude about what they are allowed to write about. At protests and public meetings, such as we've been having here in Southern California, if you see anyone there from a media, you can usually tell by their press passes or their cameras or the big honking movie cameras they've got, Have a designated person from your group go over to them, introduce themselves, and get their business card. Then follow up and keep in touch. Impress on them that their press badges do not confer immunity from the effects of radiation should something go wrong. They will be impacted too, as they already have been by Fukushima whether they know it or not. We need to keep the media informed connected with our top experts, and primed to write accurate, honest articles not controlled by nuclear industry hype, spin, PR, or budgets. So in addition to whatever else you and your group might be doing for March 11, the time is right now to contact the media and point them in the direction of Dr. Caldecott's symposium. By focusing the world's attention on the medical, meaning the human health and genetic safety, and ecological, meaning the planet, consequences of Fukushima in such a powerful and undeniable way. We will all have an easier time getting our local battles for nuclear sanity to show up in the mainstream media in a way that doesn't make us nuts. We've got less than two months to promote this. Let's get started. Before we close, I have two musical notes. La, la, no, not those. First, as I mentioned before, we will be going out on an original song about Fukushima that is very cool, bluesy, and nicely performed by singer-songwriter Tom English. So please stay tuned and listen through to the end. And a correction to our story two weeks ago about composer Andre Molino's award-winning Three Mile Island, which we called a musical. 
According to Mr. Molino, it's more accurate to call it a multimedia staged concert. We apologize for the error and still think it's a terrific project. So where's the theater in America that's going to pick it up? Lincoln Center? Mark Taper Forum? Anyone? This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 15, 2013. Material from this podcast was gathered from enenews.com, informable.com, Kyoto, Analytical Sciences, Billboard Magazine, ABC 13 in Texas, Fairwinds Energy Education, The Augusta Chronicle, OC Register, Asahi Shinbun, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook Network. You can find all our podcasts posted on nuclearhotseat.com forward slash blog. We can also be found if you friend Nuclear Hot Seat on either of its two Facebook pages, and you can get the entire library on iTunes podcasts, where you can subscribe for free. Share us, link to us. We are the activist voice on nuclear issues, so use us as the resource we are. And if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send us an email at info at nuclearhotseat.com. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we have a song coming up in a moment, and we have now all had our nuclear wake-up calls, so do not go back to sleep. Whenever I hear people say, let's restart San Onofre, when life and death, our very breath is, what's at stake? They talk of tube fluidity. Elastic instability and Fukushima rises like a mushroom-headed snake. What part of Fukushima do you not understand when nuclear contamination hits the fan? Plutonium is everywhere. It's in the sea. It's in the air. And we don't even have any evacuation plan. What part of Fukushima do you not understand? What part of Fukushima did you somehow miss when? Sure is shooting every time with things like this. Destruction rages like a flame. Officials playing, spin the blame. And all of us are bracing, racing, facing the abyss. What part of Fukushima did you somehow miss? He humankind is humankind and we all make mistakes. Hard sometimes to not be blind and fall for fakes. But even now, before our eyes, it's in the sea, it's in the skies. You know we best prioritize air, water. Come on, guys. What part of Fukushima do you need clarified? What happens when the plate tectonics slip and slide? And then it flows. What happens then? It isn't if. You know it's when. And everybody petrified, nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. What part of Fukushima do you not understand? How then can even FEMA ever lend a hand? The time to make the break is now to wind and wave and solar power. If we're going to live, nuclear power must be banned. Wrap your mind round Fukushima. 
It's no time to be a dreamer. It's no time to be a schemer. Google Fukushima, take a stand. <laughs>